something has to make you hit rock bottom. And I think that being arrested for me certainly was uh, rock bottom. On this episode of the Great Point Podcast, Rex Chapman tells some incredible stories about his sensational run at Kentucky, why he babysat Stephen Curry, what it's like to be in an NBA dunk contest, and a very personal look at how he's winning the fight with addiction issues he's battled for over a decade. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Legend. It's the word I kept coming back to when thinking about the best way to describe our guest today, Rex Chapman. He was a schoolboy legend in Kentucky, went on to play for the University of Kentucky, where he was a legendary Wildcat. And then he had a 12-year NBA career, which included a couple of dunk contests, one of the most famous shots in league history, and a 39-point outburst against the 72-10 and 10 Michael Jordan-era Bulls squad. When I reached out to a friend of mine recently, the former Arizona guard Matt Muehlbach, who was a terrific player in his own right, just a little bit after the time Rex Chapman was at UK, I asked him if he knew Rex. He said, I wish I did. Just remember watching him in college and thought how cool he was. I think Matt speaks for many of us when he said that. There have also been many stories about Rex since his playing career ended. Some are bad, some are good. But this, I think, is a story about redemption, and that's why I'm excited to talk to Rex about all of it. Rex Chapman, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's a great introduction. Hope I can live up to it. There's no doubt. There, there is no doubt. Rex, so much to get to throughout your career and uh, everything that, that's happened since, but I really want to start at the beginning. So can you tell me your earliest childhood basketball memory? Uh, I guess it was probably uh, it would probably have to be going to my father. My father coached high school basketball in Kentucky uh, when I was growing up, and probably around six or seven, you know, going to his practices and watching his guys play, and then going to their games. That's about as far back as I can go. So early on during that time, how involved was he in your development as a player? He would probably say not much, but I I would say a lot. Uh, You know, I picked up a lot uh, from him watching his high school teams practice and play, going to their games, and then he later coached at uh, Division II school, Kentucky Westland, and Owensboro, Kentucky, where we're from, and uh, they had great success. And so, you know, I I was in the locker room during halftime, before games, after games, and, uh, you know, everything that I've learned in the game likely comes directly from him. One of the things that I think stands out about your career and your playing style from those early days was the fact that you were an innovator in a way, in the sense that the NBA game now has sort of evolved into this analytics game where people are so focused on shooting threes or getting to the basket. And you excelled right. at both of those things. How early on did that skill set of shooting from deep and attacking the rim come into play? Well, you know, I, I just kind of, it wasn't until I was probably a sophomore in high school, uh, junior, 
maybe I was small uh, up until that time. I think I was a 5'7 or 5'8 freshman in high school and grew six or seven inches over that summer. And, uh, you know, I started becoming a little bit more athletic uh, as I was growing into my body. Um, you know, I could always handle the ball and, and shoot it because I, I was always playing with the ball in my hands as a point guard. And then uh, once I grew, um, you know, I just kind of I kind of got lucky in that, uh, you know, I, I was, I'd grown up watching the game, being around the game and had played the game. And then I, I just, I grew and uh, everything sort of came together for me athletically. So I feel like a lot, there had to be a lot go right for me to, to be able to put that package together. Mm-hmm. Well, it did. I, I know that. You're playing at Apollo High School in Kentucky, 1986. You're Mr. Basketball. Uh, in the state of Kentucky, Parade High School All-American, McDonald's All-American. At what point during your high school career did things start to change in terms of your national recognition? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I guess probably around around age 15 or 16, I, I started, you know, noticing that people were knowing me in our region and in our state. And then... Uh, um, Probably sometime during my junior year in high school, uh, I'd been to a couple of camps over the summer where, you know, the National League ranked players were. And, and so I guess it was probably around my junior year of high school, around 16 or 17 years old. What was the recruiting like at that point? Oh, uh, it was pretty crazy back then. Uh, you know, I... I so much has changed now, uh, but, you know, you got letters in the mail every day. And the biggest thing I think <laughs> that uh, probably young guys don't recognize today is you just had a landline in your home. There were no cell phones. So the college coaches were calling the house all the time. And uh, I can remember that led to some of the biggest fights my, my younger younger sister and I ever had were over the telephone. She knew she needed to get off the phone when recruiters called. and hated that rule <laughs> so uh, uh we went at it over the recruiting but it, it was it was crazy um you know i i had i didn't want to go real far away but i'd grown up as an sec and acc basketball fan loved watching the big east on espn back then but uh i thought i'd probably end up going to an acc or sec school you say too that the recruiting got pretty crazy Outside of the phone calls and uh, tying up your sister's uh, landline, what uh, what was the craziest thing you would say happened during your uh, recruitment? Oh gosh, uh, one of the more memorable things I I believe was uh, you know I I had narrowed my list of schools to uh, North Carolina, North Carolina State, Kentucky, Louisville, uh, and Georgia Tech, and. Uh, it was during the recruiting period, or I, I think the recruiting period was just about to start up again going into my senior year. And we noticed that someone was uh, parked out in front of the house and it had been for a few hours. And then it started getting dark outside. And uh, I, I went out there to ask, you know, who, you know, if he needed something or, and it was, uh, it was Jim Valvano sitting in his car waiting for midnight. He pointed to me and said, you know, sort of mouth, I can't speak with you until midnight. So <laughs> I backed away and uh, uh, we did. I talked to 
Coach Valvano at midnight. And uh, but that that was it was just sort of crazy, you know. The big name coaches coming to our school, uh, Dean Smith and oh gosh, uh, Denny Crum and Joe B. Hall and on down the line. Uh, it was just uh, it was it, it was sort of fun, but at the same time, it's kind of overwhelming as a teenager. It's funny. A lot of big big time recruits speak of it the same way. The other thing that I always find interesting when talking to guys who've been very heavily recruited out of high school is just how it sort of impacts their their family and friends. Even though you're the star basketball player who's had all this attention for now a couple of years, and, and not to say that it's become old hat, but you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm sure there's a certain level that you get used to. But what about for your, for your friends and, and family? What was the experience like for them as the recruitment? You know, you became this, you know, at least in the state, a major celebrity. Yeah, uh, you know, I had I had always been uh, Wayne Chapman's son. Are you Coach Chapman's son? I, yes, I guess I am. So that went on until I was in my mid-teens. So I, you know, I was never really Rex. I was just Coach Chapman's son. Um, and then that sort of changed. And uh, I don't know. You know, I think you know it's just different now with social media and Twitter and Facebook and everybody being connected. You know, you just didn't. The people you were with <laughs> was who you were with. You weren't talking to someone anywhere else, uh, texting with anybody. So, you know, you're pretty close with all those people that that uh, are going, you know, sort of going going through this whole recruitment with you. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's good in that uh, there is a little, there was a little smaller circle back then. So you weren't sharing everything with everybody. And the people that really knew me, you know, I was able to get advice from them on what they thought and trying to help me make a, a big decision. You decide on Kentucky, obviously, and uh, you end up right from the jump as an impactful player. Year one, you're, you make the uh, all-SEC team. And the game that everyone seems to remember from that point in time is playing your rival, Louisville, first time on national television and you have 26 points in that game. What, what do you remember about about that day? Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I remember it being a day game. I, I remember, uh, you know, obviously, Kentucky. My decision came down to between Kentucky and Louisville, and I'd always been a Louisville fan growing up. Uh, probably just because everybody else was Kentucky fans, I just wanted to be different. But I loved Denny Crum. My idol was Daryl Griffin. And, uh, you know, recently those two schools had just started playing each other again, you know, after, you know, some 20 years of 30 years, maybe of not playing. So those in-state games, uh, against Louisville, uh, were, I knew going in, uh, they were very heated, heated and the schools didn't like one another. And so, you know, there was a little extra motivation, I guess, but, uh, we ended up taking control of the game. They had just won the national title the previous year. And uh, so we we went in there and just controlled the game from beginning to end. And it was one of the first days, uh, one of the first games, I guess, to really see how impactful the three-point line was and it was going to be because we had some shooters. Louisville didn't have any shooters. And this was the first year of the three-point shot across the board in college basketball. Let me backtrack for a moment. Leading up to that game, you're this star recruit and you're trying to fit in on this, you know, prominent program nationally. Mm-hmm. How was the dynamic for you as a freshman, uh, especially a, a big scorer 
with the rest of the guys on that on that team at that time? Um, well, that's a good question. We going in, you know, I just wanted to. I, yeah, I had been on the you know McDonald's teams and the the All American teams as a high school kid, but as a freshman when I stepped on campus at Kentucky, I you know I weighed 165 pounds, and um, you know I'm thinking, shoot, they could possibly redshirt me, you know, because I physically I was immature. And when when I got there, as most freshmen do, I went through it, you know, from the lifting to conditioning, and uh, you know there were days I'd I'd you know leave the gym and be like, God, you know, I don't know if I can play here or anywhere uh, after days mm-hmm. like that. You're terrible when you do play because your body's so sore. But going into the season, you know, I, I was really just hoping to play a little bit. And uh, once we started practice. I, I guess I had always taken for granted that I knew how to play. I, I just, you know, growing up the son of a coach. And what I realized was once we got into practice, we had a lot of great athletes. We had a few really good basketball players, but not everybody was a, a you know, was a, was able to think the game and understand the game. And I think that really helped me uh, to be able to play some early on. When you say think the game and understand the game, uh, for people that aren't playing at a D1 level or, you know, mm-hmm. even a D3 level for that matter, like what kinds of things separated you from your teammates in that regard? Uh, well, not all of my teammates. There were, there were plenty of teammates that, that we right, had right. that, that knew how to play. But No doubt, uh, no doubt. I, I just throw that, you know, term know how to play. Uh, I think, you know, always knowing – kind of innately uh, what the score is and how much time you have, those types of things, uh, you know, I think separate, um, you know, really good players from the rest of the pack at times because they're, you know, constantly uh, there's one goal in mind and that's to have more points on the board than your opponent at games in. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of thinking that has to go into that uh, throughout the course of the game when you're making, you know, decisions on the fly. So I think just understanding the game and having been around it for so long, you know, uh, as a kid really helped me once I got to college. We all think about that, you know, breakout game against Louisville as, as your breakout game, because that's how, you know, the memory serves. I mean, it's, it's Uh been nearly 30 years, but for you, when did you feel Mm -hmm. like you were this breakout player for the team? You know, I don't really know. I know that, you know, prior to that Louisville game, you know, we'd only played four or five games before we played Louisville that year. And we'd already gone to Bloomington and lost in overtime. But I had a big game in Bloomington. Uh, That was was, uh, the year they won it, ended up winning it with Alford and Keith Smart, Dean Garrett and those guys. But, you know, so I I already knew going into the Louisville game that, you know, I could play at that level. Uh, it was still very difficult that first year just because I wasn't, you know, I'd maybe gained five or seven pounds or something. So I'm playing at 170, barely. Uh, and that was the <laughs> di- most difficult thing about that that freshman year. Um, and then uh, I guess, uh, you know, I've made the Team USA that, that next summer going into uh, my sophomore year. And that was a a great honor uh, Denny Crum coached the team so it was just uh, you know a lot of things I guess you, you 
play the better players you play against um is it's probably the best way to gauge uh how good you are how good you can possibly become playing against the best so what was your favorite memory during your two years at, at Kentucky on the court on the court I, I think probably uh we had a game against Tennessee my freshman year um and they were in our building in Rupp Arena and neither one of us were very good but this was a really good game they were up on up on us 10 10 points with a minute to go and uh we ended up coming back i made a couple threes a teammate of mine ed davener made a couple threes and then i made a little leaner runner floater at the buzzer to put in into overtime and we ended up winning going away and i think that was for me that was the most fun win we had uh, while i was there during your time there you end up leading as a sophomore Kentucky to an SEC title. Uh, you guys finished with a 27 and six record. You had scored over a thousand points and then you play in the NCAA tournament and you're on a run and you personally are on a tear. You reach the sweet 16 and play Villanova scoring 30 points. What do you recall about that game? Uh, I, the, the main thing I recall is we were up, I think 10 at halftime and rolling. And uh, our power forward, Winston Bennett, he had three fouls in the first half. It was an important part of our team. We came out in a 1-3-1 trap to begin the second half. And Winston came up and made a foul about 50 feet from the basket. They gave him his fourth foul. And after that, I've never watched the game. Uh, the only My only memory of it is walking off the court thinking, you know, what just happened? Because we were a one or two seed and had been top ranked for a lot of the year. So uh, we definitely weren't thinking thinking about going home in the Sweet 16. That was a that was a devastating game. And as difficult as that memory is, what is that feeling like if you could put it into words that shock of knowing that all of a sudden you're well yeah. what turned out to be your college career ending. Right. Um, you know, I definitely wasn't thinking that that would be my last college game. I still had a couple of years of eligibility left. So I, I was, we, we had a veteran team, you know, I was the only underclassman. We had the, our next, uh, six or seven besides me were seniors. So, uh, you know, and, and at that point in time, really freshmen didn't play a whole lot across the board. So even though we had signed, Sean Kemp and Chris Mills, who would have been freshmen the following year, you know, you just didn't think that a team full of, you know, young players is going to be able to, uh, you know, win the tournament or, or go very far in the tournament. And that was just how it was at the time. So many four-year players were in school, Danny Manning and, and uh, David Robinson and those guys. So a team laden with young players, you know, until the Fab Five came along, really hadn't done a whole lot. So, you know, I, I I just had to kind of regroup and go from there and decide, you know, what was going to be the next best thing for me uh, going forward after that loss to Villanova. That summer after college, as you mentioned, Sean Kemp was supposed to come to, to Kentucky. And from what I recall, he enrolled in school and then transferred to a community college. So you knew, you knew of Sean Kemp coming and, like you said, Chris Mills. And then that right. summer – is when the Emory Worldwide scandal happens, when 
this package of, of money opens up and uh, all of a sudden Kentucky's involved in, in this recruiting scandal. So take me through your mind in terms of these events happening and mm-hmm. your decision to go pro. Yeah, well, the, the package apparently uh, took place sometime during my sophomore year. Um, so I was in school when that, all that news broke. And uh, so we sort of had this cloud hanging over our head a little bit for the remainder of that year. But, you know, I, I had met Chris Mills on his, on his visit and was a great guy, a uh, good kid. But, you know, we, just, we didn't know what to think uh, when all that happened. So the season ends, and, yes, there is this uh, looming investigation. And, you know, our coach, Eddie Sutton, he was sort of on the hot seat uh, over, you know, this uh, reportedly being having happened on his watch. So with, you know, our top seven guys, eight guys from that year who were going to be uh, gone, um, I just felt like the timing was probably right. We were going to go on probation of some sort at Kentucky. I really would have liked to have, I felt like at the time stayed another year. Uh, But it was just, uh, you know, we didn't know if we were going to have scholarships or if, you know, we were going to be be able to play in NCAA tournaments. So I felt like it was really the best time for me to go ahead and declare and put my name in the draft. If Kentucky's not involved in that scandal during that stretch, you return to school as a junior then? Uh, you know, I would say probably. Um, you know, at the time, I'm not sure that, you know, that's what I was thinking. But, you know, looking back, you know, I, I really did feel like I could have stood another year of maturity, um, not so much from a physical standpoint because, kind of gotten over that hump uh, of being small and, and not very strong uh, during my sophomore year. So I felt great physically and felt like I could compete with anybody physically. But maturity-wise, emotionally, another year would have been very beneficial for me in college. What's it like at, at a school like Kentucky? And, and it's weird because you bring that up and I, I think to myself, there's there are so few schools that can even make that claim at a school like Kentucky. I mean, there's nowhere like Kentucky uh, <laughs> when it comes to college basketball. So for you, schoolboy legend in the in the state, then you go to Kentucky, and by your sophomore year, you're known nationally as you know this standout, this talented, great player. On campus, day to day life, what what's that like? Um, it, it was it was fine it was kind of crazy you know there were a lot they were selling shirts at the time that you know said i the big heart in the middle um and people were wearing this stuff these things on campus and it was a little bit odd and awkward but everybody was good to me you know uh all the other athletes the students were great to me so you know even though you sort of live it everybody lives in a fishbowl in kentucky uh, when they play at Kentucky, I think my experience was probably magnified somewhat because I'm from the state. I was born and raised there, and I was white. So, you know, at the time, it's the mid-'80s, and uh, you know, I, I think that probably my experience was a little bit more magnified or put under the microscope than, than some 
other guys than some other guys were. So, yeah, you know, I, I really didn't think about it while I was there. I just played and, um, you know, people have asked me about, um, you know, playing before big crowds and, and, uh, you know, as a young guy and if there were, there was pressure and I can honestly say there was never any pressure when I played basketball. Um, I felt like that, you know, if I was myself and healthy, I could play with and against anyone. And so playing basketball was the easiest part about being at Kentucky. Um, dealing with the other stuff was a little bit more difficult. The story that came out 2005 was about you dating a, a student at the time involved in an interracial relationship. There was pressure from the university over the fact that you were dating someone who wasn't white. Can you tell me about that whole experience? Think about how silly it sounds saying that out loud in 2015. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, But that was sort of the climate, and it's in the South. And, uh, you know, naturally, you know, when you're doing doing something you believe with every fiber of your being isn't wrong, then, you know, you feel like, uh, you know, your feelings can get hurt. My feelings were definitely hurt over that somewhat at the time. I think it was probably... It's been more blown out of proportion since, but, uh, uh, you know, it's just the way things were back then. Um, and, you know, here we are, the whole tenor of, of race has changed. It's still not, you know, ideal in this country, but it has changed for the better in the past 30 years. Where was the pressure coming from specifically? Um, you know, I think there were just the, I think there were boosters and administrators that, maybe didn't like the uh, image that that was going to portray. And, um, you know, my answer at the time was the same as it is now. And it was, I really don't care. <laughs> and I'm going to, uh, you know, if I'm not doing anything to hurt someone else, um, hurt others, then, um, you know, at that time I was, you know, I was 19 and starting to think for myself a little bit more, but, uh, yeah, you know, I I just sort of brushed it off. How aware were your teammates and and your friends and and your family as to what you were dealing with? There were a handful of, of teammates, um, a handful of friends that you know that that knew that you know I had I'd been advised to you know kind of hide or curtail what I was doing uh, with with a you know a girlfriend and this was I had girlfriends at Kentucky this is what was so maddening was you know uh, you got one being singled out for uh, this color of her skin so uh, you know I I really didn't uh, my friends and family couldn't have been better my teammates couldn't have been better Um, but I probably kept a lot of a lot of stuff inside back then as many of us do at uh, at that age, obviously. Mm-hmm. And Rex, just so I have some clarity on this, what year was that out of the two years that you were in school? I had dated this girl in high school uh, in Owensboro, our hometown. So we'd known each other since we were 15 or 16. Probably started dating a little bit when we were 17 or 18. And she went to school at Kentucky as well, at UK. So, you know, we continued dating some there. Uh, so this was the entire time I was at Kentucky. And how was she through all this? 
she was she was good because I never told her any, any <laughs> anything about any of it. She knew later, but uh, yeah, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna put that on her at the time. So is it administrators and boosters are taking you aside and saying something to you? Is that how it would play out? You know, I'm not even sure who exactly it was, but you know, I had several meetings there that uh, that took place that uh, sort of discouraged me from uh dating you know dating black girls and uh you know i i was an equal opportunity dater (laughs) Uh, (laughs) white girls uh, black girls asian girls uh jewish girls across the board i I wasn't uh I, i didn't discriminate so it just bothered me that you know uh the girl that i'd known the longest you know, they didn't want me to be around or not in public anyway. As it should have bothered you because that's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and you're right. You think that, you know, times have changed, although we still deal in a climate now in which there's still right. so many uh, issues with, with race relations. After your sophomore year, you declare for the NBA draft. And uh, that summer, you ended up getting drafted eighth overall by the Charlotte Hornets. Take me through the the week leading up to the draft. What that experience was like? Uh, gosh, I, I have no idea, no recollection of what that that week was like. But um, you know, there was a, I don't know, ten or twelve of us that were, you know, asked to come to New York, and uh, you know, I guess all of us got drafted. Um, it was a it was a fun experience. Um, you know, I didn't really grow up thinking about playing pro basketball because there was no pro pro basketball to be seen in Kentucky uh, during that time. And so, you know, I I just, uh, I wanted to, always wanted to go and play college ball and get a scholarship. But, um, you know, playing in the NBA was just sort of, you know, a bonus after after I'd, um, you know, played in college. It's interesting looking back on that 88 draft now because you were the first underclassman taken such a different time mm-hmm. as you go number eight, only two underclassmen in the top 20. Uh, do you know, mm-hmm. do you recall who the other one was? Rod Strickland, right? There you go. Yep. 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 That's my guy. Rod. Uh, yeah, there was, I'm not sure. There may have been a, a few more taken in the second round, uh, but you know, it was still at, at, during that time where some of the best players, Danny Mannings and David Robinson and, and all those guys stayed in school for four years. So, um, you know, it, it, it's just a different time now. Because that was the case, and because you were only a sophomore, I, I know it's a little mm-hmm. bit hazy for you that, that far back, but uh, how nervous were you? Um, you know, I never I never remember being, being very ner- nervous. Uh, you know, my representation, David Falk, had, had maintained that he thought I would go from anywhere from five to 10. And, um, so, you know, I, I had confidence in him and, uh, so it was just, uh, it was, it was fun. Um, you know, I knew all of the other guys, the older guys, you know, of course we played against, uh, one another, each other, uh, you know, for a few years. So it, it was just, it was a fun experience. I remember my, my family, my, my sister and, and my, my mom and dad were, were in New York. So it was a great experience. You're drafted by the Charlotte Hornets, who were an expansion team, and 
I had read that you're the first player ever signed by the Hornets in, in franchise history. So because that was the case, how did that situation end up playing out in terms of the next steps for you? What was that sort of start for your NBA career like? Um, you know, I, it, it was a tough place to, to play at the time just because we weren't very good. And uh, we were going to get beat three out of four nights. That's just the way it was. We didn't have uh, a lot of talent. Uh, the guys I, I was taking in the college draft and uh, in the in the expansion draft, uh, the Hornets took Del Curry. And uh, that that year, uh, uh, Stephen was born, Stephen Curry. And, you know, they would leave Stephen with me. Uh, I would live two doors down. We were, two, we were ne- almost next door neighbors. And Del and Sonia would leave Stephen with me and go to a movie every now and then. I was just 20, 19 or 20. Uh, so he, he was, uh, you never would have guessed that, you know, end up being MVP of the league. Uh, but anyway, so it was a great experience. Del and Sonia, some of my best friends and Muggsy, uh, but we, we were going to lose cause we, we just weren't very, we weren't very big and we weren't very deep. And so I want to go into the Hornets experience, but that's amazing. You were one of Stephen Curry's first babysitters then. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but what a, he's, he's a great kid. He always has been, and uh, it's just fun watching him today. I'd pay to go watch him play. For sure. So what's the leadership dynamic like on, on a team like that, considering, you know, normally an NBA franchise almost has its, its hierarchy of here are the, here are the vets, you know, the, the respected mm-hmm. veterans that everyone's looking up to. And as Kevin O'Neill on the podcast, you know, basically said the star players in the NBA – unlike in college, the star players have so much more power, you know, and it's the GM is there and you, and you've got mm-hmm. your, your team president, your owner. So, so on an expansion team where everyone's just been brought from, you know, the expansion draft, or like you say, the college draft, what was that dynamic essentially like? Uh, I, you know, I, I think it was probably pretty normal. Uh, we had, we had some older veterans on our team who's, you know, they were past their prime, but guys who were respected in the league, Kurt, Kurt Rambis, uh, Kelly Trapuca, Robert Reed. Um, these were guys who had played um, big minutes their whole careers. You know, Kelly was an all-star a couple of times and they were, they were, had very good careers. So, you know, those guys naturally were the, were the leaders uh, of the team early on and, you know, as the years wore on, myself and Muggsy and Dell, um, you know, we sort of st- started stepping into those roles. But, you know, it was we were brand new. Uh, there had never been a Charlotte Hornets before that year. And uh, so it, it was a fun and exciting time uh, in Charlotte. But it was also a frustrating time as an athlete because, you know, you're just not you're not going to win. We I think we won 19 games one year, 20 the next. And uh, who knows, mid twenties after that for a year or two. So, uh, it was a, it was definitely a, a growing experience, but you know, uh, we gained valuable experience doing it, uh, as players. You averaged under 17 points a game, just under 17 points a game that first year, although the, the losing was frustrating. How difficult did you find to score at the NBA level? Early on the first 10 or 15 games, I, I wasn't very good. But after that, uh, you just start, uh, you know, I, it would seem like, you know, sort of riding a bike. 
you know, you figure out, you know, what you do and what you can do, what you can't do. And, um, you know, scoring was something that I, I could always do. And, um, you know, I, uh, I figured out along the way, uh, early bumpy rookie season that, you know, um, you know, I could play, was never a question of athleticism athletically i um i was always fine uh playing the game of basketball but you know you just had i had no you know experience to draw on i was i think i was the youngest player in the league uh at the time that first year and uh in fact and the oldest player at the time was kareem he was in his last year and my father played against kareem so <laughs> There's a, a cycle for you, but uh, yeah, it was it was um, it was fun, but you know, frustrating at the same time. While you're with the Hornets, you get a chance to play in your first compete, I should say, in your first slam dunk competition. I know your your uh, behind the back flip into the to the reverse dunk mm-hmm. is a was a favorite of mine. Uh, watching the yeah. dunk contest from a, from afar, what are your memories from the the, the slam dunk competition? Uh, they were fun. You know, it was still, I think at a time where some of the best dunkers were still doing it. Uh, Dominique, um, you know, Kenny Walker and Spud Webb and, and we had, you know, Scotty was, was in it, uh, that year. And so uh, Sean Kemp guys who, you know, were known around the league as being fantastic dunkers, you know, anymore. And that's not really what you get. I mean, we get it one or two kids they're usually the young guys that nobody knows much about and uh you know so it was fun i liked the format that they had back then and you had to make your dunks it wasn't like you could take 10 times to try to make a dunk you had to make it and if you didn't you lost (laughs) (laughs) how much did you practice in uh, preparation for the dunk contest uh not a whole lot i don't know that there's a lot you can do everybody's got you know four or five dunks that they do and uh, you know, you certainly have practiced them over the years if you're going to be in the dunk contest. So I don't think I practiced a whole lot. I just kind of, you know, tried to think of what order I should, you know, bring each one out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the behind the back uh, toss. I, I still think it's, yeah. it's an iconic yeah. classic, classic right there. Um, yeah, well, thanks. Oh, you're welcome. Well, your run in, in Charlotte didn't last forever you end up traded to the to the bullets for tom hammonds so mm-hmm. you remember the washington bullets and uh as i mentioned to you off air uh i spoke to dom mcclain about your time as as teammates with the bullets and he said that you're a really funny guy during that stretch <laughs> how much did you enjoy your your bullets experience uh it was a lot of fun you know uh i was traded to, to washington and we were sort of a, a young team. Uh, we had myself and uh, within a year or two, Don McLean and Tom Gugliotta, Purvis Ellison, Harvey Grant, Scott Skiles. There were, we had, we had talent um, and had good NBA talent. We were all just really young. And I've said to Don many times before that <laughs> we might've been the happiest, funniest 2022 20, win team in NBA history, but uh, we did have some good times there. And uh, you know, Guys like Michael Adams, Big George Murison, Calbert Chaney. Uh, we had very, very good players. Uh, we were all just really young. What did the fun consist of back then? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Nor- normally clowning on everybody. 
uh, everybody else. And uh, you couldn't you couldn't be sensitive on those teams. Everything was up for grabs. If uh, you know if you wore the wrong color, uh, anything, anything, and everything was uh, within bounds to joke about. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you mentioned the idea that um, that you guys were young, and I, I'm always curious from an outsider's perspective, not being in those locker rooms and not out in the on the court and crunch time, we, we hear all the time about how inexperienced teams fall apart late in games. What do you think is the difference experience wise when you're actually out there playing? You know, as young players, you just don't know all the tricks yet. You just don't know how to, how, how to hold and get away with it. You're also cutting your teeth against guys who are, who've been doing this for seven, eight, 10, 12 years already. Uh, you don't get calls. Every questionable call uh, near the end of a game is always going to go to the veteran team when you're a bad team, when you're a young team. And that's frustrating. Um, so, you know, and then through the course of, you know, taking your lumps like that, you know, you hope that you're a good enough flair that you're going to last long enough to be become a veteran <laughs> and then get called and, and get all those things that, you know, uh, drove you crazy as a young player. After your time at, at Washington ends, you are then traded again um, with Terrence Wrencher to the Heat for Ed Stokes and, and Jeff Webster. That's in in 1995. Do you recall the the day that you were that you were traded from Washington? Uh, yeah, I, I think I was. Uh, I believe I was traded the night of the draft, and was thrilled to to be going to Miami and play. You know, Pat. Riley had just taken over the team. It was his first year, so it was exciting. I was going to play with Alonzo uh, Morning, a, t- a terrific shot blocker, and I'd never played really with a shot blocker before. So it was exciting. I, w- I was looking forward to it and knew the style that Pat played and always respected it, so uh, it was, I was looking forward to the challenge. So February 23rd of that year, the, the, the following year, you have – an absolutely memorable game from from those NBA fans watching. Um, I'm curious as to how memorable it was for you. 39 points, nine of 10 from three, over that 72 and 10 Bulls team that obviously featured Michael and Scotty and all and all those guys. So so again, your your memories from from that particular night. Well, we we were we were shorthanded. Um, we just made a trade and we had two or three guys going to golden state and two or three guys coming back, but they were all in route. So we only had eight players available and, uh, you know, Chicago would probably come in the night before and thought they had a night off against us the next night. And it just ended up backfiring on them though. But I, I do li- like that. We were the, I think we were the last team to beat them that year and kept them from having single digit, uh losses so we take some solace in that but it was a fun night um one of those nights where you know you're 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 just in in rhythm and uh it was fun to do it against those guys how often would you say that happened to you during your nba career where where everything just started falling oh it happens you know there there are uh, a dozen times a year where you have those games and uh you just sort of you know you just you just need to get open. You you know you're sco- going to score once you get open. You just have to you know free yourself uh, off the dribble or around screens or however to get open. And uh, 
you know, those nights are fun. Your coaches know you have it going. Your your uh, teammates know you have it going. And, and uh, you know, obviously those are memorable, memorable nights. Watching uh, some tape from from that game, I noticed that uh, Jordan and, and yourself were going back a few times, talking a little bit. Do you recall <laughs> any of the instances you guys were uh, were jawing back and forth? Uh, not really, or what really what was being said. I, uh, Michael and I have always been friends. Uh, we had the same uh, agent, David Falk, and uh, you know, heck, Michael had called me back when I was in high school. Uh, he had just left Carolina to asking me, you know, putting in a recruiting call for Dean Smith. So <laughs> we had talked uh, as far back as I guess I was probably 16 or 17. And so we knew each other over the years. But, hey, you get you get heated in games sometimes and, you know, things are said. And that's just how the game is. It's how the game used to be, I should say. I don't know that that's really how it is much anymore. But it, it was it was always fun, always fun. You don't think guys talk as much anymore? Well, I don't think that guys uh, – I think there's less uh, there's less that they can say now, and I know there's less that they that uh, than they can do now. That, you know, you could you used to be able to fight a little bit. <laughs> now there's just nothing, and everything's nipped in the bud and heavy fines, and, you know, guys don't want to lose fines like they're finding people now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's weird to watch the evolution of the league and see that now, you know, I, I know this probably makes me sound older. But I, I think it goes for life in general. But I, you hear all the time that guys, I feel like guys, like toughness isn't valued the way that toughness was valued at one time. Do you share the same thoughts? Uh, yeah, and it does make us sound old. But uh, I, I think there, I think there is, you know, something to it. One, I think you used to be allowed to to be tougher in the NBA and and play tougher. Uh, now, you know, I, I don't really, you know, you could look around the league years ago, and we had Charles Oakley and Xavier McDaniel, and and we had guys who, uh, you know, push came to shove, you you might just fight. And mm-hmm. now. Uh, you just can't do it. You can't even ball up your hand like you're going to punch somebody now. And, uh, you know, I think that a bit of that is good for the game. I really do. Uh, but it's a different world now. We've got social media. Uh, the guys all know each other from the time they're young, like 10, 12, playing AAU travel ball. In the 80s and 90s, guys still didn't really know each other like that. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, pre-cell phone. Uh, pre-social media and you knew and loved the guys on your team and you pretty much hated everybody else unless you went to college with them. So, <laughs> and I, I think that was a healthy thing for competition and for pro sports. But, uh, you know, we are where we are now. And there's a lot of corporate sponsors, big money people. And, and I, I get it. You know, it's, it's a business and the business is thriving. So what am I to say? <laughs> and, in terms of your your time back then, who was your your group of friends throughout the league? Like guys you had known, whether it was through the McDonald's game or what have you. Who was your core group of guys you would um, come up with? Yeah, my core group was uh, Kenny Walker at Kentucky. Uh, mm-hmm. He's first and foremost. We we didn't Kenny and I didn't play together. He was we missed each other just exactly by four years, but. We were the best of friends, uh, Del Curry, Muggsy Bogues, um, 
you know, Steve Nash, Jason Kidd, um, Cliff Robinson, Danny Manning. Those were all my guys. And, uh, you know, there, there are many others, Tom Gugliotta, Don McLean, and, um, just a, a great group of guys that, you know, you, when you finish playing, you don't remember as much about the games, but you remember those guys in the backs of the bus, back of, back of the buses, the bus rides, the plane rides, the airports, um, you know, the winning on the road, uh, was always fun. Um, so, you know, they're your friends are what you, you take with you in the end and, and, and those kinds of memories. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. We all say we feel like we, uh, have the greatest job in the world. Summers are off and, uh, mm-hmm. we play inside. We don't have to play in snow or mud or rain or anything like that. So <laughs> it is a, it's a, it's, you know, I feel very honored and privileged to, to have been a player in the NBA. It's funny you bring up Kenny Walker. I, a buddy of mine produced the Kentucky documentary a few years ago that was run during oh, okay. March Madness. And uh, yeah, he and, and the funny thing is, so when I when I told him that I'd be speaking to you, he said that he didn't get a chance to interview you for that doc, but he did interview Kenny Walker, and uh-huh. uh, who he says amazing guy. But he also said that when he had just started his career, he was working at NBA TV. And I don't know whether it was someone, you, a friend of yours or your agent, mm-hmm. someone you were in contact with had requested a highlight reel of all Rex Chapman plays. And they made a video oh, really? titled Rex in Effect. I don't know <laughs> if you recall. I vaguely remember this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I vaguely do. I, I'd love to see it <laughs> wherever it went. <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to find it. He ended up producing yeah. the uh, the documentary um, Once Brothers on uh, Drazen and and Vladi for right. the thirty for thirty so, was his also. Yeah. But yeah, that when he was so first good. starting out, Rex and Effect is is, is like his baby project. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Yes. So so then the Miami Heat end up releasing you. What happened there? Why was the the stay so short uh, with with the Heat? Uh, well, I was at the end of my contract. I had a year left when I went to uh, Miami, and I really wanted to stay in Miami. Um, but I didn't want to play on a one-year deal. And, you know, I'd been a starter for seven or eight years, and I uh, was coming off a good year. Uh, Pat wanted to keep me, uh, but this was right when the money started going crazy, and Pat was really wanting to sign Jawan Howard, and who was in Washington, and re-sign Alonzo. And all three of us were David Falk guys. So, um, in the end, I think they wanted to get Alonzo and, and, uh, Jawan straightened away. And then I don't know, there wasn't, there just wasn't enough left for me. I didn't feel comfortable with it. So I told them I wasn't going to resign. They released me, but then the league made Jawan go back to Washington, uh, and rescinded that deal. They unrescinded me and, and put, gave me back to the heat. And then the Heat offered me a one-year deal that I wasn't, uh, I didn't feel like was enough. And uh, so I said, no, I'll be a free agent. And uh, that's when uh, they released me and, and I signed with Phoenix. Which obviously turned out to be a great moment again for, for NBA fans, getting a chance to watch you as, as a Phoenix Sun on, on some of those um, late 90s, early 2000s Suns teams. Uh, how was the experience for you? Oh, Phoenix was great. You know, the year in Miami, that was the first year that I played that we 
you know, made the playoffs. So it was on, it was the first time I'd been on a team where we won at least as many games as, as we'd lost. And uh, when I went to Phoenix, uh, it was more of the same. We had some really good teams, Kevin Johnson, Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, um, Cedric Sabalos, Danny Manning, Mark Bryant, Cliff Robinson, Wes Person, uh, Raymond Tisdale. Uh, we had really good players, really good teams, and our the guys in the locker room were terrific. Everybody got along great. It was just a, a really fun place to play for four or five years. Of course, the 97 first-round game against the Sonics, people have talked about for a long time because of your shot. 1.9 seconds left on the clock. Uh, you guys are down three. Can you picture it to this day? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess a little bit, um, uh, you know, disappointed because we ended up losing that game and we should have, we should have put them away. We were a seven seed and, uh, Seattle, I think was, the, yeah, they were the two and they had a really good team, Kemp and Peyton, that was shrimp. And, uh, you know, they, they were just, they were very good. Uh, but we had their number all year and we had them down uh two games to one at that point and we absolutely could have put them away and we ended up losing it in overtime but the shot i have people that'll ask me about it a few times uh a month and uh you know it's just one of those fun things it was an opportunistic time to make it it was during the playoffs but you know as you know there are guys making plays like that every night of the year in the nba it's a it's a fun league and you can never be surprised what professional basketball players are, are able to do on that floor. It's pretty amazing. I, I think you're being pretty humble though. I don't, I don't know that guys are making that kind of play every, <laughs> every night, but, but I appreciate, appreciate the humility that also during that stretch in the, in the playoffs, I mean, you were, you were pretty good. I mean, that uh, 97 looking at the numbers right now, 24 points a game, three boards. You were also making – you made 4.43 pointers a game in that series. So just a remarkable stretch as, as far as I was concerned. So well, great run. Yeah. I, was, I was healthy at that point, and that was always pretty much the key for me if I could remain healthy, and, and I had a very tough time of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was healthy, and, you know, we, we had them, I think. Uh, um you know, play, I, I was a beneficiary too of uh, playing with two Hall of Fame point guards. Uh, so those guys, Jason and Kevin, really garnered a lot of attention. And, um, you know, I was able to kind of uh, draft off of them, so to speak. Uh, I wanted to ask you about some of those Suns guards, obviously, Kidd and, and Johnson and, and Steve Nash. So Jason Kidd, I've contended for a long time that just as a viewer and watching thousands of point guards that he's the best passer that I, that I've ever seen. How about for you? Where does he rank amongst the best passers you either ever played with or, or played against? Jason's up there. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the two guys that come to mind when somebody asks about passers are magic and Jason, and I could put Stockton in there too. Uh, mm -hmm. But those three, those three guys, that's, that's pretty good company. And Jay was, I've always maintained that Jason might be the greatest six, four, uh, and under guy ever just pound for pound. He, 
and he changed the game. You know, the guys that really can change the game are usually six seven, six eight, six nine guys on the wing or taller. And Jason at six four, um, he just could dominate games, uh, rebounding the ball, getting it out. He couldn't practice as hard as he played because uh, he played at such a frenetic pace during the games. He would just be exhausted afterwards and he would mess your practices up because he's trying to go at 50 percent <laughs> it was awful <laughs> but uh one of the greatest players maybe the greatest player i played with uh but are arguably you know best point guard in history how about uh kevin johnson you referenced him and i, I think he seems to be a i don't want to say a forgotten figure in in nba mm-hmm. history but what he was doing during that stretch you know where you know, Isaiah is still in the league and Stockton's mm-hmm. there and Magic's there. And you have all these great, and he was doing what he was doing in Phoenix. People don't remember the greatness that mm-hmm. was Kevin Johnson at, at one time. No, I, I agree with that. I think Kevin uh, suffers, his career suffers a little bit in the eyes of many, also due to his injuries. He he was a guy to stay healthy, had a hamstring problems, groin problems, uh, and was always just nicked or banged up. But when Kevin was healthy, really, I mean, he he was a problem for everyone. He was so quick, uh, fast, compact. He could jump. He could shoot it. And, uh, gosh, I remember we played them one time when I was uh, in Washington, in Phoenix, and KJ got a triple-double in the first half. So, <laughs> he, I mean, he could really, he could really, really play. And how about uh, Steve Nash? Early on, obviously, with with the Suns, learning from Jason Kidd is is how I would assume it it took place. You know, not being there, but how much did how hard did you see him work? And also, how good did you know that he would sort of become? Uh, well, I think uh, he he worked his butt off. Uh, Steve was still he was coming in as a freshman or a rookie. He was he was a bit pudgy he hadn't uh you know started looking at his diet or anything at that time but nobody worked any harder tells you they thought that he would be an all-star and mvp uh for sure all-star and a two-time mvp you really got to call him on it because nobody could have seen that um but you did know that he had every skill you you just didn't know if he's going to be athletic enough and uh, when Steve went off to Dallas, uh, he changed his diet um, and really became a pro. And uh, from there, I mean, the rest is pretty much history. He just uh, he's one of the best to ever play. Uh, I don't know how he did what he did in Phoenix uh, with those guys still. He's one of my best best friends. He's uh, just a great human being. And uh, it was awfully fun to play with Steve during those two years. He was initially in Phoenix, uh, you know, developing a friendship that, you know, we still have today. So he's just uh, a great guy and, and and has left his mark on this game. Crex, I know that from the media perspective, you always hear about how talented people are. And this guy is so talented and everyone, you know, it's like everyone in the NBA is so, quote, naturally talented that it's almost mm-hmm. like people don't see the work that you, that you guys put right. into your craft. And I always find it fascinating. So when you talk about the work that, that's, that Steve put in and that yourself put in, 
Can you try to explain for people that extra work in addition to just the practice that puts you guys on, on another level from just being good NBA players to really being outstanding players? Well, you know, I think there really has to be something, you know, we all see talented players. I mean, there, I can think back to grade school, middle school, high school. There are always guys in my city, in my own city in Owensboro, Kentucky, that, uh, you know, that I felt were more talented than I was. So we all know talent uh, doesn't guarantee anything. I think that, yeah, there are a lot of guys, you look across the league and there are a lot of unbelievably athletically gifted and talented basketball players, but you can't make a career of it, you know, playing 10, 15 years uh, if you if you haven't worked at it because it's, uh, you know, it it is your job. And, uh, you know, we tend to forget this sometimes watching these guys because there are so many hours that go into it when you're in college you know, you're practicing every day. It's, it's, it's like a job in college and, uh, it's not the normal collegiate experience. Um, but you also realize that, uh, you know, for whatever reason you've decided to do this, you're pretty good at it. And, uh, you know, you try to try to play for as long as you can, because at some point you're not going to be able to anymore. Well, you talk about that. Tell me about the day you retired. Uh, well, I, I had, uh, uh, my, my body had been breaking down for a little, a little while. I had some bad injuries and some metal, uh, you know, and, and planted in my, uh, shin and foot and ankle over the years. And I was really starting to feel the wear and tear. So during the, uh, 99, 2000 season, I pretty much decided that, at the end of the year, I would retire. I had to have a thumb surgery that was going to, um, you know, pretty much uh, limit my range of motion. And so uh, I couldn't palm the ball like I always could. I definitely couldn't shoot it like I could. The ball came off funny after that. So I knew that uh, I was going to retire. And it felt as though I was doing it and fully aware of what, you know, uh, I was going to do after that, which was sort of chase my kids around and play golf and (laughs) uh so but you know it was it was difficult to a a difficult decision to make because it's really all you've ever known and and it's it's a bit frightening uh but yep I felt like it was I wasn't uh, I was having to spend so much time in the training rooms and rehabs and uh that kind of took the fun out of the game for the first time so felt like it was probably time to time to go you've just listened to part one of my great point podcast interview with rex chapman check out part two on itunes you do not want to miss what rex has to say about his life since retirement